Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. There are some things that remain pretty standard, and one of them is that you are expected to hold yourself to a higher standard than most. And that doesn't always go too well with ADHD. Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, before we get started, I'd love to share with you this review from a listener called Help It's Glitchy on the Apple Podcast platform. It's entitled, Thank You for Making This Podcast. I was diagnosed with ADHD four months ago, just before I turned 28. This podcast is exactly what I have been looking for. You are my unofficial support group. This is the first ADHD space where I feel truly seen. Plus, I am learning so much about myself and how to better care for myself. Oh, I love this. Thank you, Glitchy. And really, thank you for taking the time to write a review. I know it's not easy to stop what you're doing and take that time to put your thoughts into words, but it really does not only make my day to know these interviews are helping, but it also helps so many other women find this podcast and hopefully learn more about themselves so that they can feel truly seen and understood as well. Speaking of support groups, if you're looking for a safe, inclusive, friendly, and supportive group of women with ADHD who will have your back, please come join us in the Women and ADHD online community. I always say that finding our people is such an important part of our treatment plan. And I'm so grateful for this online space. It's a wonderful place for us to connect, ask questions, share strategies and advice, or simply vent and share memes. We also have weekly virtual get-togethers and monthly live sessions with ADHD experts. Our next one is coming up this Sunday with psychologist Anna Bartolucci, who I actually interviewed way back in episode 99 of the podcast. Anna will be hosting a live presentation and Q&A on overcoming procrastination. She'll be reviewing some common ADHD procrastination pitfalls, as well as offer strategies and ADHD-friendly tactics to conquer perfectionism and overwhelm and get out of your own way. You can find more about that presentation at womenandadhd.com events. Now, as a member of the community, you also have access to our entire archive of recordings of past experts. 
I am continually amazed at the level of empathy and kindness and thoughtfulness that exists within this group, something you don't see very often in social media spaces. So come join us over at womenandadhd.com. And of course, that link is in the show notes. Okay, here we are at episode 145, in which I interview Kay Roloff. Kay is a pastor who lives in southern Minnesota. She's also the co-host of Nerds at Church, a podcast about themes shared between the Bible and various areas of nerdery. Kay was diagnosed five years ago with ADHD, and she later wrote an article for Sparkhouse about some of the ups and downs of life as an ADHD pastor. She's also a moderator for a Facebook group for pastors with ADHD. Kay and I talk all about some of the specific benefits and challenges of being a pastor with ADHD, including being held to a higher standard by their congregation. We also talk about how her diagnosis has helped her reframe her approach to her job and how she has helped several of her colleagues get diagnosed as well. I know you will love this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kay. I guess let's get started with uh, talking about your ADHD diagnosis, which was about six years ago at this point, right? Thereabouts, yes. Uh, I was in my early 30s at the time, and I had a full-time job. I was at my my first regular church, uh, and I noticed that I was getting more and more disorganized and more and more forgetful and losing things. And I'd always had a little bit of that in my life, but it was getting much worse. And I actually had benefits at this job, and so I was using it to get caught up on some health care, and I was seeing a therapist. And uh, while all this was going on, I found a Tumblr post of all things that was sort of describing ADHD from the inside as a woman. And I said to myself, this sounds eerily familiar. And also, are you telling me that this isn't normal? And after reading that, I mentioned it to my therapist and she said, you know, I have ADHD. And having met with you several times now, I was wondering if maybe you were an example of that, but I was waiting for you to bring it up. And so I continued to meet with her. I was trying to figure out what it would take to get diagnosed, but then she had to uh, leave town and I couldn't see her anymore. And then there was a misunderstanding with my insurance. And then I had some dental emergencies and suddenly I had $3,000 of stuff to pay off. And I had to do that before I could get diagnosed. And uh, then it was six months later and my forgetfulness and disorganization was so much worse than it had been. And I wound up being asked to leave my job. And then I lost my insurance and had to go on my husband's, which was not as good. And we had to move. And so it took about a year for me to actually get diagnosed from after that first hint, about six months after leaving the church. Uh, and then the medical help that I had at the time was, you know, that generation of medical professionals who were apparently deeply scarred by the 90s and small children being over uh, over prescribed strong drugs. <laughs> I had one of those. And she tried to convince me to take these unregulated white pine tree bark supplements instead of something, you know, approved by the FDA. And we had a little argument. And I insisted on something approved by the FDA. And eventually she agreed on Stratera. And because that didn't have stimulants, so she could live with that. And I started taking them. And because I didn't have any guidance, I didn't know anyone with ADHD who was on the non-stimulant medication. I had several friends with ADHD, but they were all guys on the really heavy stimulants. And I 
didn't understand how to take the meds in order to sleep like a normal person. And so I had like six months of sleeping in swing shifts and hoping for four hours a night. And I could not hold down a job uh, And while I was getting used to the meds uh, and figuring out how to time those with morning caffeine, because I did need some stimulant. And eventually, now I'm sleeping better than I ever have in my life. Uh, and as it turns out, I'm pretty sure what actually got me diagnosed was something that I have heard from several colleagues who are women who have ADHD. Uh, it turns out that apparently in the early 30s, one of those small hormonal changes that happens throughout your life, for a lot of women, that will cause your brain to go haywire. I don't know exactly what it's called because it turns out if you try to Google women and hormones, horrible things show up and it is not a helpful thing to search for at all. Uh, but I've heard this from several different women that if you have ADHD, when you hit your early 30s, it, everything goes a little extra haywire. And so that happened to me. And since then, because I've aged out of that age bracket and apparently the hormones have shifted back somehow. Uh, I've been able to reduce my medication levels, uh, and I'm doing much better as a result. But that whole process was just deeply confusing and wildly uncomfortable for me because I had spent my entire life being told that my brain was the best tool I had, and I was brilliant and a, a wonderful student, and suddenly I couldn't control anything in my life. And it was so deeply unsettling. Yeah, I feel like there's catalysts, uh, you know, like I, I like to think of my own ADHD in terms of just these ebbs and flows throughout my life where there were times either hormonally or structurally where it was really at a fever pitch. And then there were other times where I was sort of like, I was fine, right? <laughs> I seemed to be doing well. And then other times, you know, like babies and puberty and so and now perimenopause where it's, you know, I feel like a lot of women are diagnosed in perimenopause too because of the you know, I'm not sure what the early 30s hormonal changes are, that's peri-perimenopause or what that is. But like, you know, I just feel like there's these moments where our life suddenly becomes out of control. And, and it's like everything that we had, all of our management tools that had worked for us at other times in our life just get like blown off the table. And, and that's where it feels like chaos ensues, right? And And so, yeah, even just talking about like, you know, having a job where you had benefits to suddenly not and like all of the difficulties that we have even just booking doctor's appointments and like getting to things right like I my therapist the other day was asking me I've been trying to talk to my own doctor about medication and I call and I leave a message and nobody calls me back and then I have to remember to call back again and it's like there, there's just so many things involved in these otherwise seemingly simple transactions that I'm like that's the diagnosis right there right which is like how long does it take you to do some of these simple things yeah and sometimes if one person in the process isn't properly informed, it can throw a giant wrench into the whole process. That nurse who I mentioned who didn't like me being on real ADHD meds was under the impression that because I was taking a FDA-approved ADHD med, I had to take a copy of the prescription on paper with me to the pharmacy and give that to the pharmacy in order to have them approve it and give me my drugs. And I had to do that every month. And that added like four steps to getting my meds. And it was, I think, three months before I finally realized, wait, this does not sound likely. And I asked the pharmacy about it. And the pharmacy explained to her that no, she was wrong. So 
just one person in that process, and there are dozens of people in that process, uh, can throw a giant wrench into everything. Yeah. Right? And yeah, and I, I didn't realize Torterra actually messes with your sleep. I always thought that was the stimulants doing that, but was this just new meds, or what do you think that was behind that? I think it was the new meds, uh, and I I really didn't understand about the importance of taking them in the early morning yet, because I was reading mostly uh, advice for people who were taking stimulants. And a lot of the people who take stimulants take them at different times of the day uh, in order to sort of space them out. Uh, and so I think between that and for a while, I tried quitting coffee uh, and also just my general nerves about everything. It, Yeah, I, I couldn't sleep for months. Wow. Oh, interesting. So I, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's kind of how, how we find this stuff out is hearing other people offhandedly mention these things. It's not like it's something you would think to go out and Google. And I've helped so many of my, my colleagues get diagnosed because so many people don't know what ADHD is like from the inside. And by explaining it in uh, various groups that I'm in, mostly on Facebook, I've helped, I think, at least a dozen people get diagnosed by now, uh, just in the last few years. Uh, and I'm so glad that they have the help they need now. But it's astonishing how few people know. Yeah, I know. It was funny when you were mentioning that about, you know, meeting people who so clearly have ADHD. And it's like, how or when do I tell them they're on their own journey? <laughs> uh, and, you know, and then I start sharing my own experience being like, like you said, like, that's not actually how everybody experiences life. This is actually, you know, a very, you know, very much part of your brain wiring, um, <laughs> but also not wanting to diagnose every person I meet. Now, so I'm curious, after your diagnosis, then, what were some of those things looking back over your life as one does, where you were like, oh, the signs were there all along? Oh, so many. So one of the things that came to me almost immediately was, uh, there's this family story. I, I was one of those small children who picked up everything and learned all kinds of new things and was fascinated by learning. It took my parents actual years to teach me how to tie my shoes. No one could figure out why that was so hard for me. It, every adult in my life at one point was sitting me down once or twice a day to walk me through tying my shoes uh, for like six months. And it was this extraordinary journey that really should not have been that hard. Uh, but uh, that apparently is super common with kids with ADHD, uh, the, the physical stuff like that. Also, I have always had terrible handwriting. I am so grateful to have something to blame that on now. <laughs> I spent so many years getting yelled at about it. And there was a class when I was in seminary. I was finishing up my last year, and I didn't realize that this had happened until afterwards. But it was one of those things. I knew the end of the semester was going to be super busy. So what I did was I took my final paper for one class and I wrote it in advance, like a month ahead of time. And I saved it to my computer and I thought it was all set and I was ready to go. And then a month later rolls around. My paper is due. I completely forget that I have written that paper or that it is on my hard drive. I don't even look in the folder that has all of the stuff for that class. And I write another one, but I am running so late that I have to get an excuse from the teacher. And the teacher tells me, I'm sorry, this is just too late and too incomplete. You're going to have to take an incomplete for the class. I take the incomplete. And then two days later, I find that paper on my hard drive. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then I had to retake the class the, the next year after I was supposedly graduated. 
I had to take a different class, actually, because that one wasn't available. Uh, it was astonishing. And I was incredibly deeply shamed about it. Uh, not, not shamed by other people, but myself. And after years of being a successful student, uh, aside from my terrible Hebrew language skills, which are a whole separate story that probably aren't the ADHD fault, I didn't know how to handle that at all. Uh, it, it was just a, a complete failure on my part, and I felt so terrible about it, I didn't want to talk to anyone about it. But I took the other class, I finally finished, uh, and uh, years later, I got diagnosed with ADHD, and I knew where all of that had come from. <laughs> Yeah, I often talk about how I felt as though I had some sort of learning disorder, but I didn't know enough about ADHD. I didn't know enough about executive dysfunction, but I, I often like had those moments, especially in university, where I had so many different processing issues when it came to information. And, you know, again, knowing I was intelligent, but also having just such deep confusion and shame around some of these things I really, really struggled with. And so always felt like I had a learning disability, but like never got to a point where I had looked into it or nobody else seemed to think there was any issues wrong. You know, it was mostly I was just either admonished by professors or, or you know, got it together at the last minute just to scrape by. But, you know, always kind of looked back and be like, I don't feel like that's normal. But yeah, never knew what to call it. So I'm curious now, also, you know, looking back at your decision to enter seminary and the ministry, right? Like, were there any revelations about this career path and ADHD brain? Well, this might surprise some folks, but actually, I have found the clergy to be a very ADHD-friendly profession. Uh, certainly, you have to have a calling to it in order to survive, frankly. Uh, if you don't have the calling, you're going to burn out almost immediately. Uh, but really, being in the clergy, uh, as long as you're in uh, a fairly normal uh, congregational environment, is great for folks with ADHD. And I've spoken to hospital chaplains that say that that's wonderful for them, too. A large chunk of that is because our schedule is so flexible, and we get to decide so much of it. And we joke in the, in our circles about how there is no such thing as a normal day for us. You can wake up and you can have a to-do list and you can have a schedule of places you have to go. And everything can get completely thrown in the trash an hour later when you find out you have a funeral. And you have to be able to roll with that or else you cannot do this job. And having ADHD means that you have already learned how to do that by sheer uh being forced to because your brain will make you do that. And so it's really a, a wonderful job for folks with ADHD. Another thing is that there is almost no such thing as busy work. You have a little paperwork to do, but even then you know that like it's going to something useful. Uh, and so everything that you do matters. Everything that you do is important to someone, even if it's not important to you. Uh, and you spend a tremendous amount of your time helping other people or uh, working on something you're genuinely interested in. And a lot of the jobs will have various creative outlets. Uh, I spend a lot of my time writing, which I love to do. Uh, and I can do that because of this job. So as it turns out, uh, this can be a wonderful place for folks with ADHD. Now, do congregations like having a pastor with ADHD? That is a whole separate universe of questions. <laughs> I actually wrote a article a few years ago, uh, just after my own diagnosis, uh, called Your ADHD Pastor and You, and I'd be happy to pass that on to you uh, for one of the educational blogs uh, associated with my denomination. 
And I've been told that a few folks have, have found it helpful. But some of the traits that come along with ADHD sometimes people don't so much appreciate in a pastor. Or it might be that there's a little misogyny mixed in there and they're confused about why a female pastor would have those traits. Uh, I, I don't know if you personally ex experience the difficulty in quickly switching from one conversation topic to another, but you know, standing in the church lobby before worship on a Sunday morning, it is completely likely that I will be having one conversation about the budget and someone else comes up to ask me, how is so-and-so doing in the hospital? And I have to be able to switch back and forth between those two conversations. But if my coffee hasn't kicked in yet, it's very likely that my gears in my brain will grind pretty hard while I do that. And that makes people think that I don't care or that I'm not paying attention. And neither of those things are true. But explaining ADHD to people in that kind of detail takes a lot of time and effort, and not everyone is willing to listen. Yeah, so interesting. I'll definitely have a, a include a link to that article in the episode show notes. One of the things I loved about that article, that piece, was talking about some of the wonderful qualities of ADHD that work in your favor, but also like being very specific about some of the accommodations, like, you know, like if you need me to be some, if, if, if an event starts at eight and you would like me to be there at seven 30, you please tell me I need to be there at seven 30. <laughs> right. Where it's like, it's not just because I'm running late because I don't care. And I think that's where so many of us get into those issues, which is like a lot of the things we struggle with are interpreted as us being careless or selfish or not meaning well. And, and it's usually it's, aggressively the opposite. Usually we mean really, really well and we get kind of tripped up. So yeah, that was a really great piece. Um, and I think also uh, the rapid fire conversation, you know, it's, but I feel like sometimes I'm really good at that and other times I'm not. I think it maybe it depends on how much stimulation is happening. Like I could totally imagine what talking about, you know, being in the lobby and having all of that coming to you. And I think about my children always, you know, we're always trying to interrupt me when I'm working and how like that, that was a big thing for me before I was diagnosed was just how angry I would get at being interrupted, like while I'm cooking or something like that. And that that rage would come so quickly and I never knew where that was coming from. And so then there's that like, what's wrong with me that I'm so angry all the time and that everybody has to walk on eggshells around me. So that was like just knowing that that was, like you said, a transitional processing issue, you know, stimulation, like that there was a lot happening, uh, a lot of things firing to get me to that place has been able to really help me not get to that rage all the time. Now, I'm curious about, you know, talking about the female element. I mean, you know, being in the clergy is definitely an old boys club, as I think you called it. Are there differing expectations, you think, as a woman in terms of how people relate to you that, you know, that that expectation to be everybody's secretary, right? You know, I hear that a lot where women are kind of, it's assumed if you're in a room full of men that you're the one who's taking notes. <laughs> yeah, that. That still occasionally happens. I have to admit, personally speaking, I experience misogyny differently than a lot of women, in part because I'm 5'11". And a woman that tall tends to put a lot of guys off their stride, you might say. Uh, and so the kind of misogyny I experience is usually a lot more subtle than what a lot of women will go through because I'm not small, I'm not especially meek, uh, unless I'm really working at it. Uh, and I also grew up in a family where all of the guys in the family were taller than me, and I have never been intimidated by height in my life. And a lot of guys are used to using their height that way and get a little freaked out when I don't react to it. 
And so my experience is different. But on the other hand, uh, yeah, there are a lot of different expectations. For the first several years, uh, just after I was ordained, I had to work with the fact that a lot of my congregation was going to see me as sort of an extra granddaughter. And I was eventually able to use that in some ways, because there are some people who don't open up to anyone except for someone that they see as family. And there were actually congregation members who I was able to get to open up to me because they sort of saw me as an extra family member. There are also lots of boundary issues involved with that, but I was mostly able to avoid those just by some careful conversation management uh, that I had uh, learned earlier uh, in terms of how to deflect questions, that sort of thing. But finding those weird expectations and then figuring out a way to turn them to my advantage was something I had to do. And frankly, if I didn't have the number of clergy Facebook groups that I have uh, working in a rural area, those connections were absolutely necessary to me. And being able to ask a hundred different people for advice uh, when I only actually saw my own congregation members and like four other people during the week, that was hugely important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Now, one of the things that a lot of us talk about, you know, I certainly struggle with is, I guess, the combination of time blindness, but also that out of sight, out of mind issue that a lot of us have, right? Which is like, I feel like we often are thought of as um, bad friends or bad communicators because I have a t- I, I, I don't remember people's birthdays. I don't remember to check in on them. If I haven't spoken to you in six months, it, I, I have a really difficult time sort of maintaining those relationships. But I feel like that's something a pastor needs to be really good at, right? <laughs> is remembering names and remembering details. Is that something that you have a workaround or do you not struggle with that? Or Yeah, well, the expectations for a pastor are usually different than for a friend. I've never met anyone who expects the pastor to remember their birthday, which is super <laughs> helpful. Also, a lot of churches will publish a monthly calendar that have everyone's birthdays on them, and those are also very useful. But in my case, uh, yeah, I absolutely have trouble with names for the first several months at any new call. Uh, and then after that, you, you hit the six months mark and suddenly you feel like you can't ask for people's names anymore. And you just have to listen to conversations to wait for someone else to use their name and then look up in the directory. How many people have that first name? Oh, well, I know it's not her or her, so she must be this one. And... <laughs> So yeah, I've done that several times. And I am absolutely one of those people. I can meet someone and I can hear their entire life story and remember every single single detail and still not be able to tell you their last name to save my life. Uh, so gotten very good at having entire conversations without using a person's name. Uh, I've gotten very good at using those details from their life that I know to deflect from anything else so that I can ask about, you know, oh, your your tractor broke down last week. Did you ever get that uh, sorted out? Or did the mechanic figure that out? Uh, and uh, as long as I'm showing interest, usually I'm okay. 
having those extra details at hand and being able to know all of the, that stuff about the person's life, even if I cannot remember, like I know they're, they're the cousin of someone else in this room, but at the smaller churches, very often those family ties are incredibly complicated and go back six generations. So they don't usually expect me to figure those out for at least the first three years, which is very kind <laughs> of them. Uh, and as long as you remember that everyone knows everyone and therefore you can't say anything about anybody that you wouldn't want to say to their mom, you're usually fine. Uh, and it's really all about the the showing interest. And even if you don't remember their name, you know something about them. And as long as you can go to that, that's usually helpful. Right. Well, I think one of the things we are specifically very good at is being present, right? It's almost, the, you know, it's the opposite of, okay, so I'm not going to remember these details. I might not remember to check in on you. But when I am with you, I can be very present. I can find what you are talking about fascinating. Like I, we can sort of go on a journey together and show interest in a way that I think is something that can really work in your favor, I guess, when you're in a caring profession, which is why I think so many people with ADHD end up in these personal face-to-face relationship type roles, like social worker or nurses or teachers. So yeah, it makes sense that clergy would also fall into that category of just being like, you know, being able to develop these, these sort of temporal, intense relationships with people. Yeah. And okay, I know that it is every ADHD person's personal deep hatred of hearing this. And I am one of those too, because I've had people say this before, but I have managed to develop the, not a consistent habit, but uh, I usually remember to, if I'm having a conversation with someone and I realize I need to check up on them, I put a reminder on my phone for three days from now to call them. Now, it's like, a 70% chance that I will remember why I'm calling them, but usually just picking up the phone is enough. And then they will start telling me about what's going on. (laughs) Unless I remember to actually put a note in, which almost never happens. Uh, And I've got my phone calendar set to remind me uh, a day before and also 10 minutes before anything happens, uh, just automatically every time I enter a new thing into it. Uh, And so I usually get enough notifications that I actually manage to do the thing. I'm also one of those oddball elder millennials who I don't actually have a problem making phone calls. The thing I hate is receiving phone calls because I spent so many years undiagnosed with ADHD where almost every phone call I got was bad news. You've missed an exam. Uh, You forgot to give us this piece of paper and now we can't finance your next year of school. Uh, That kind of thing. And so uh, making phone calls doesn't bother me. But the receiving phone calls, I I still panic and wonder, oh, no, am I I about to find out that someone's died almost every time? Well, it's, you know, it's funny because anytime my husband or my best friend calls me, I answer in a panic where I'm like, hello? You know, they know. They're like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I called out of the blue. I just, there was something really quickly I wanted to check with you. Um, (laughs) Because for, yeah, it's true. I never thought about the whole fact that it's always bad news. For me, I'm the same way. I don't mind talking on the phone. I I don't mind making phone calls. In fact, if you text me and say, do you have five minutes to chat? I'm like, yeah, of course. Uh, it's the, tr- but for me, just the, the random phone call out of nowhere for, is such a transitional thing, right? Where it's like, I can't shift whatever I'm doing fast enough to answer the phone. And it feels like a real affront. Uh, <laughs> whereas if I just have a little bit of warning, I'm fine. And so that's what I always thought it was a transitional thing. But it's interesting to think about the fact that like, maybe there is some unpro- unprocessed trauma around phone calls in general. Uh, that's really interesting. And but you know it's funny the the setting reminders thing 
I do that too. Um, and, you know, I have reminders for every person I care about's birthday and, you know, all of those things because I would never remember. Um, but it just reminded me of even when you were talking about having a conversation with somebody and checking like, okay, what is their last name? I have to go back and do that. Like how much mental work we have to put on in the background, you know, like in the wings uh, in terms of like having to kind of do all of this extra work at the background. Where it's, and then we wonder why we are so mentally exhausted all the time. <laughs> It's because there's so much of those, right? There's so much of that extra work that goes into showing up that we don't, I don't think we pay attention to. We don't, we don't give credit to all of that extra work. All we see or all we think about is the fact that we're mentally exhausted all the time. And the only reason I can remember to go through the directory and check on people is that I have a directory next to each of the three places I most regularly sit. And so I see that. Uh, and then it is on my mind. And then I eventually make the connection of, oh, yes, which Lois was that? Uh, and that eventually works out. You know, one of the things I, I've talked about before, because I, I grew up in a very religious e evangelical family. And so we um, were very involved in the church. And um, one of the things I really appreciated about the church was just the, the built-in community and how I think that is so important for people who are neurodivergent to have those communities and how those, you know, I think Facebook can be really great for that kind of thing. Um, but it can also, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword, I think, sometimes, uh, because there's so much vitriol <laughs> on Facebook. But I think, you know, anywhere where we can find intentional community, I think, is so important for our brains and how we socialize. Uh, it makes sense to me that there is so much benefit, right, to you know, being in a Christian community with ADHD. But I also feel like there is so much judgment too, right, in terms of character flaws and this, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness and some of the stuff that comes with the with the community aspect, right, which is the community judgment and the hypocrisy. Like, how do you weather all of that? <laughs> That's such a big question. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like there's so much benefit and yet at the same time, difficulty. Before I had my diagnosis, I absolutely got a lot of comments about my personal habits or my conversational style that it bugged people and they thought it made me a worse pastor. And something I, I used to comment on that I thankfully now that I have a diagnosis and I'm able to tell people that uh, it's less of an issue. But the thing is, is that if you're a bad mechanic or a bad accountant, most people will still recognize you can be a good person. If people think you're a bad pastor, there's almost no room for them to think that you're a decent human being. It's weird. <laughs> so every comment about your job turns into a comment about you as a person, uh, which was deeply damaging to me for years until I got my diagnosis. And then I could say, actually, this is an ADHD thing. And you probably know other people with ADHD who do this exact same thing. And uh, let me explain to you how this works in our brain so that you can have a little bit more empathy toward them as well. And I don't entirely know how to explain this, but I think the timing of my diagnosis was also hugely important. I got diagnosed in about uh, 2018, uh, early in the year. And once I had my diagnosis, I started talking to people, and it seemed like a lot of the folks in the congregations I was working with had grandchildren who had just been diagnosed with autism. The, the numbers for the diagnoses were going up, and the normal people who didn't have any knowledge of 
any kind of me- mental histories uh, in their families. We're getting to have more information about recognizing those signs and therefore their ability to empathize with someone with a different kind of neurodivergence actually skyrocketed. I mean, on the one hand, I would have loved it if I had gotten diagnosed as a child. Uh, there's a family story that in fourth grade, a specialist came to my class and tried to convince my parents I had ADHD and made a really terrible argument for it. And so they didn't believe him. But that would have incredibly changed my life. But I can't imagine trying to explain ADHD to people back in 2001. Like that would have been a completely different and exhausting thing before there was all of this much more common knowledge than it is now. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but it's it's so much easier and so much more likely that the people you talk to either have a family member themselves or have a dear friend who has a family member that they're able to empathize more. And that's been really massively important to me. Absolutely. Because I've, I've had several conversations with people where I was genuinely worried about how they were going to take the inf- the fact that I had ADHD, especially like interviewing with a new church. And almost invariably, somebody mentions, oh, uh, my friend has a granddaughter with autism, or my cousin has a sister who has ADHD, or th- that kind of thing. And there's just so much more information and, and general knowledge out there now. Uh, it's been incredibly wonderful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that also speaks to why so many of us after our diagnosis are so open about it and kind of shout from the rooftops and and get into an advocacy role because it really is about changing this perspective around how can I help people who may have children that they're confused about, right? Like where it's like, this isn't a discipline issue. This isn't a matter of obedience. This is really, this isn't a character flaw. This is really just like, how do we alter the system to work with everybody? And also, you know, how can I say if I could save one person from going through the experience I went through, it would have all been worth it. You just reminded me we were talking because both my parents have passed on. Um, but my father, in every Sunday in church, he would like it was so hard to sit still. And my parents always had all of these different interesting ways to get me entertained, you know, quietly during a sermon. But my father used to take notes and it, it occurred to me after my diagnosis. He, he'd never read them. They just went into a binder and he had binders and binders and binders of notes, but it was the only way he could like stay present and stay focused was to constantly write notes. And I'm like, I feel like you could kind of look through the congregation and decide who has ADHD based on who is taking notes just because of that. It's like doodling, right? Um, it's sort of that way in which we need to, we need to keep our brains focused on the actual uh, sermon. So. <laughs> But it's just all those little things that I've have occurred to me and just, you know, intuitive ways in which we manage within our environment and just in terms of how our brains work. Hey, friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, 
and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. So now I'm curious also, you had talked to, I guess in our correspondence, you had talked about the difference between creativity and lateral thinking with ADHD. And I wanted to know if you, do you remember writing that? What was the, what were you thinking when you wrote that? (laughs) Was that in reference to? Yes. Oh, I think that having ADHD, one of the things a lot of people comment on is that we are able to make connections that other people don't. That's the lateral thinking. And because of those connections, it winds up looking like creativity to other people because they don't see why we're making those, frankly, sometimes bizarre connections. Just ask my husband. Uh, But we can come up with solutions and ideas that other people won't come up with. Uh, Of course, now that you're asking me, I automatically cannot possibly think of an example of this. Uh, But it has happened multiple times that I will make a connection other people don't. Uh, One of the... Uh, the things that happened to me was I was in a class one day and we were talking about the five different things of whatever it was. And I managed to connect it to a list of five things from uh, the previous class period, which was about something completely different. Uh, and my professor promptly promised to cite me in the book whenever that he was currently writing, whenever he actually got it published. Uh, as far as I know, it still hasn't been published. So, oh, well, but uh <laughs> because those two things happened so close together, I was able to connect them. Uh, and it was uh, an, an unusual connection that other people wouldn't have made. But I think it's because of my ADHD that I was able to see how those two things paralleled each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do talk about that a lot. But it is I think it can be really difficult to come up with uh, concrete examples off the top of your head of when that happens, right? But even anyone who listens to this podcast hears it throughout the conversations as we go from one topic to another. In, in a seamless transitions, right? But then if you're like, oh, why does why are we suddenly talking, you know, we were talking about potatoes, and now all of a sudden, we're talking about, you know, butterfly migration, you're like, oh, well, no, obviously, those those all connect. Um, so uh, now, but you know, even I feel like even your podcast, you co host the podcast nerds at church. How did you start the podcast? Well, so 
years ago, the podcast actually started in a different form with a different name. And then a certain extremely popular author became a turf and we had to change the theme of the podcast uh, to be a little bit more wide ranging because my podcast partner is non-binary. And although we would have anyway, to be honest, but we've started embracing all different types of nerdery, uh, all the nerderies that we personally have ourselves and also the, some of the ones that our friends have. Uh, and we take uh, a popular set of readings that is used by many uh, large denominations. It's called a lectionary. The idea is that you get a set of readings for each week and also each major holiday. Uh, and that way you don't have to choose them yourself. And there's a decent variety. Uh, and so uh, we take those readings and we uh, look through the reading and we see what other kinds of nerdery come to mind? Uh, is it a line from a popular TV show we like? Or is there uh, something mentioned that I wound up talking about uh, how linen is woven uh, differently now than it was 100 years ago, because it turned out that the invention of the cotton gin meant that all of the linen weaving machines got shut down because you couldn't make money off that anymore. And so uh, linen now is actually a wildly different quality than what you could make or 200 years ago. And so uh, all of those things, uh, any given Bible reading has a bunch of different stuff in it. And even just a word can bring something to mind. Uh, and so, yes, it is absolutely uh, hugely helpful for my ADHD. Uh, it is very tailored to that. Uh, my co-host, Emily, does not have ADHD, but they they know several people with ADHD. And so uh, it's it's been a lovely adventure. Uh, we very much enjoy it. And we're also trying very much uh, with this podcast to just make the Bible and uh, religious themes more accessible for people and to see that Yes, this is another kind of nerdery, but also it connects to all the other kinds of nerdery we already have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I think we're also living in a time where there are many conservatives in this country who are trying to weaponize um, Christianity in a way that I think is tragic. Uh, now, so wait, you have um, a Facebook group for pastors with ADHD that's, sep that's separate from the podcast, right? Oh, yeah. So it's not technically my Facebook group. I am now a moderator in it. I did not really have a choice in that matter. Sometimes you just get uh, recruited for things without really having a choice. In it. <laughs> it's volunteerism. I know that's another thing with ADHD, chronic volunteerism. Yeah. And yeah. And so I joined the group and then I knew a bunch of people who I wanted to join the group and Facebook won't let you uh, invite people to join unless you're a moderator, I guess, on that particular type. And so I wound up having to be a moderator and then the group doubled in size and now somehow I'm partly responsible for it. But <laughs> but that's been hugely helpful for us, especially since a lot of the people in the group are in the process of getting diagnosed or just newly diagnosed and still figuring those things out. I wish I had a group like that back when I was just getting diagnosed uh, because I didn't have direct connections that way. Uh, I had plenty of clergy to talk to. Uh, the clergy Facebook groups uh, that I've been in have been very helpful for like work-related stuff, but very few people there uh, had ADHD, and most of them weren't willing to talk about it in places that other people could see, frankly. So it's been very helpful. Yeah, right. And again, again, where I feel like Facebook can be incredibly helpful in terms of normalizing some of these struggles and validating them, but also, you know, being more constructive in terms of like, how do you deal with this? How do you work with this? Right? I think a lot of these, like you were saying that one of the great things about being 
a pastor is that there's not a lot of that paperwork because I think there's so many of us struggle in jobs where there's a lot of interesting face-to-face work. There's a lot of, you know, every, every day is different. But what we really struggle with is like administrative stuff <laughs> and all of the stuff, that, you know, the stuff that's just the terrible mundane parts um and how do we get other people to do it but or how do we figure out ways to you know do it with a little less stress about it so um i think that's where you know those groups can be so helpful so what are some of the when people are coming to that group or what are some of the things you find are are common struggles that pastors are are noticing that they might need help with Well, I think the most common question is, so what med are you on and how is it going for you? And unfortunately, so many of those questions, I mean, it's all just so personal. We still don't know why some meds work for some people and some meds work for others. Uh, I have been on Stratera my entire diagnosed life, except for one weekend of trying Ritalin. And it turns out I am one of those folks who unfortunately receives hallucinations while on Ritalin, never doing that again. And uh, thankfully, I was not working for a church at that time, thank God. But so we all answer to the best of our ability, but we also have to explain that, you know, your body chemistry is different than ours, and there's really no telling how you're going to react. And so you just have to try it. It's uh, We mostly try to avoid making the it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall to see if it sticks uh, comparison, but frankly, it's a really good one. So you only have so many options. Uh, But also we wind up talking about, uh, yeah, how does this impact our relationships with congregation members? Uh, How do we do certain very specific tasks? Um, I, uh, like you said, that data entry stuff or the administrative stuff that we don't like, uh, making that stuff easier is something that I have a huge amount of drive to want to do. And so, for example, uh, years ago, I created a uh, mileage Excel sheet uh, that does all the math for me. And all I have to do is once a year, go in and plug in the new IRS mileage rate uh, and uh, empty out the the old cells so it's blank. Uh, and then I have a mileage sheet that I can use all year. Now, have I filled out my mileage for the last six months? No. But when I do, it's not going to actually take me that long. <laughs> but it's basic stuff like that. Yeah. And to be honest, a decent chunk of the reason that group exists is just to know that there are other people out there and we're not alone. Uh, because while the expectations for pastors are so different depending on what denomination you're in and what area you're in and your particular congregation, every congregation is different. There are some things that remain pretty standard. And one of them is that you are expected to hold yourself to a higher standard than most. Uh, And that doesn't always go too well with ADHD. And so those are very often the, the common conversations we have about how we have to make it clear in other ways to people that yes, we do care about you. Yes, this is important to us. Uh, Yes, this does matter. But we're treating it a little differently than you might expect because our brains are wired differently. And so figuring out how to have those conversations is a big part of it too. Right. And I think that's, I think that's such an important part of that personal reframing that comes with a diagnosis is realizing, you know, so many of us have such a complicated relationship with our intellect or our, you know, our sense of responsibility. And many of us didn't feel like true adults and all of that stuff that kind of gets muddled for us. Right. And then, so this, I think it's so important for us to be able to to convince ourselves that yes, you can be extraordinary, you can be intelligent, and also 
be bad at some of these things <laughs> or, or, you know, also need support and struggle, not just be bad. That was terrible. But well, no, sometimes we are just bad at things. But, yeah. <laughs> sometimes we are. I know, but it'd be okay about that. Right. And, and, and not have it be such a reflection of our, our worth as human beings. And I think one of the things I credit Sari Solden's work so much for was, was how much she drives home that point that yes, you can be extraordinary and still need a lot of help and support. If that particular system that is working for somebody else doesn't work for you, it's not a reflection of how terrible you are. It's just that system doesn't work. So find one that does, right? And move on. <laughs> and, you know, not dwell on the what's wrong with me question that I think a lot of us ended up defaulting to before this diagnosis. That's really interesting. I didn't, ha- I didn't think about that. But as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, of course, there would be that sense of like, you know, the higher standard and the, and the, sense that you have to be all things to all people, um, that pressure would be would be quite high. <sighs> um, well, wonderful. So now, is there anything else that um, I, I know you have a website? Is it a course that you were that you offer through the through your website? Yes. So, well, not, not through the website. Uh, the denomination I'm in is the ELCA, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Uh, evangelical doesn't mean the type of evangelical that you were talking about earlier. Uh, it's just a word for sharing the gospel. Uh, the, the word goes back way further than the political movement, uh, by all means. But uh, my denomination has a program for students who are about middle school age, 12, 13, uh, called Confirmation, where basically you learn a slightly more nuanced version of the Bible and the faith than you picked up in Sunday school. And at the end, you decide if you're ready to take on your baptismal promises, uh, your faith life for yourself and confirm your faith or affirm your faith. Uh, and so this course, uh, there are lots of different options from lots of different places and publishers. And frankly, a lot of them were just getting way too tech focused. And I'm used to working in rural congregations that have very little money. And uh, I don't know if you've ever personally had to set up and then take down a projector every single week before, but it's exhausting and miserable. And especially when also like getting the projector to work with a set of speakers that it's not actually supposed to work with because those are the ones they could afford, but making the connections work every week is a whole new adventure. Uh, and so trying to show a video for class uh, is just way more work than it ever should be because it's not like all the students can see your laptop screen. And so I got really tired of that. I wanted a, a program that I could use that was just a book, a Bible, and the students. And so that's what I put together. Uh, it's called Grace Alone, Lutheran in the 21st Century. And I did my best to make it so that it would suit uh, not just kids going through that process, but also uh, it can be used for small group Bible studies for adults as well. Uh, I like to say it's for children of God between the ages of 12 and 112. Uh, and I tried to make it so that uh, everybody could find something useful in it. And I was very much going for the let's treat these students not like small children because they are about to take the step of becoming adults in the faith. Uh, so let's give them more information. Let's give them more detail. Let's acknowledge the nuances. Uh, and that can also be really helpful for a lot of adults who haven't, frankly, had their imagination stretched when it comes to their faith for a long time. Uh, and uh, so I've known people who have used it for small adult groups, uh, as well as for a confirmation program. Uh, and I've really enjoyed working with that. Uh, and it seems to have helped a lot of folks. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Um, okay, well, I'll definitely put a link to that. Now, the another way people can reach you is uh, what, Twitter. Uh, yes, uh, Nerds at Church has a uh, Twitter and a Facebook account, uh, and I do have a personal Twitter account that I don't really like. I don't personally tweet; I just retweet things mostly. Uh, but I I can send you that as well. Okay, yeah, I think I have that. That's Romans eight twenty one, right? Now, why is that yes. your favorite verse? Yep. Oh, uh, so this is a fun story. I was like eight or nine years old, and I was about to go to sleepaway church camp for the first time. And I had been going to church long enough that I was pretty sure that one of the questions I was going to get was, did I have a favorite verse? And I really didn't. Like, I, I had some stories I liked from the Bible, but I, I didn't really care about verses. And so one day, uh, I had heard this idea that people could, like, do this not exactly fortune telling thing, but sort of like ask God to give you a sign and you open your Bible to a random page and see what verse your eyes fall to and see if that's God answering your question. This is absolute hokum, obviously, but I was eight. And so I opened my Bible to a random verse and I found uh, Romans chapter eight, uh, verse 21. And depending on which translation you read, it reads a little differently. But the one I was reading uh, was talking about, uh, we have been freed from the corruption uh, of humanity to the glorious freedom of the children of God. And I love that phrase, the glorious freedom of the children of God. Uh, and that's really not a way that a lot of people describe their faith lives, but it is so central to what I personally have experienced. Uh, and uh, and what I have been uh, taught about what the, the Lutheran concept of, of faith is all about. And so that's been really uh, wonderful for me over the years. So yeah, that, that phrase, glorious liberty or glorious freedom, depending on which translation, uh, is one of my favorites. That's lovely. I love that story. I had a similar experience with my high school yearbook. We had to you know have our, our final message or quote that went with our graduating photo and I couldn't think of any I couldn't think of any and I literally we had a giant you know book of quotation a famous quotations book in on our bookshelf and I opened it up randomly and found a quote by Vaclav Havel that was like if you're mediocre and you grovel you shall succeed and I was like I'll take it. <laughs> that ended up being my quote. I was like, yeah, it seems like it. Uh, but I had never heard of Vaclav Havel. So it like sent me down this whole, you know, rabbit hole of who who this person was. And I ended up, I don't know if this is related, but I ended up being a poli-sci major and like ended up, you know, learning more about him. And I had this weird connection to him. And I was like, <laughs> but you know, people were like, why did you choose that quote? And I was like, and what an ADHD quote too. <laughs> I know, right? Actually, now it all makes sense. Looking back at it, I'm like, it made perfect sense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that the randomness of choosing things and then having them make sense to us in the end. Um, so now if you could rename ADHD to something else, would you, would you call it something else? I don't know that I would rename ADHD, but I do have a new name for a phenomenon about ADHD that I think most of us are familiar with. Uh, so I have a bunch of friends with different uh, chronic mental conditions. And one of the phrases we love to use together is the brain weasels, right? It, it's not that I want to do this. It's that the brain weasels are doing this to me. And so uh, depression or autism or uh, ADHD or whatever, like some days your brain weasels are just getting to you. That's perfectly normal. That's not my thing. I I didn't invent that. Uh, but what I did eventually realize was that there are also days when our mental conditions are doing good things for us, even if like it's kind of random. 
And so there are days when I really enjoy the the wacky journeys my ADHD takes me on. Or uh, I've known a couple of people who have said that they once had a day where they were so grateful for their depression because it kept them from going to a party where everyone got COVID or that kind of thing. And so I started calling those the brain guinea pigs because they're very similar to the brain weasels, but they're actually doing good <laughs> things for you. They're cute and fluffy. Uh, I like just brain rodents in general, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think we have a tendency to refer to our brain in the third person a lot of the time as though it is this, this petulant roommate, right? That we live with, that we can't control. And sometimes it does these things and sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes it's awful, but like, we feel like we are not at the wheel a lot of the time when it comes to our brain. Uh, <laughs> So that tendency to kind of other, you know, make it this other roommate that we have, uh, I think is very, seems to be a very neurodivergent experience. Well, this is lovely. Thank you so much, Kay. It's been wonderful hearing your perspective and your story. Um, how did you find the podcast? Since you were diagnosed so long ago, did you just stumble upon it or? Oh, yeah. No, I came across it uh, in the last six months or so uh, just by searching my uh, podcast app for ADHD. Uh, and uh, this was one of the first ones that showed up. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, I've found a lot of the episodes very interesting. So uh, that's been very helpful. Great. Well, I'm so glad you reached out and that we can share your interesting story. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Absolutely. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.